In 2017, I published a short book called Creep, A Life, A Theory, An Apology. In it, I interwove personal narrative and cultural analysis to explore what it means to be a creep. I drew on my own personal experiences growing up gay in the Deep South, where I was often made to feel that I was a creepy kid in the 1980s. But I also looked at examples from literature and popular film and media to see how people who are identified as creeps are often viewed, sometimes with horror and sometimes with sympathy. After all, who among us hasn't felt a bit creepy at times? This podcast draws from stories and examples in my original book. In these episodes, we will explore different aspects of what it means to be creepy. A warning, don't be surprised if you're listening to this podcast. While for many of us, the specter of the creep can be threatening, it can also be a bit exciting. Exciting perhaps in the possibility of threat. Yes, we get creeped out, but we are also fascinated by creeps perhaps in part because we all sense the potential inside ourselves to be creepy. Part 8 Have you liked where I've taken you? Have I creeped you out? Have you perhaps creeped yourself out in having listened this far? (laughs) I have enjoyed the reactions when I've told people that I'm writing a book called Creep. I get off on their perplexity, even confusion. Surely, Jonathan, what do you know about being a creep? You seem so nice, so successful, so put together. But creepiness, well, creepiness is a long-term relationship. Even at 50, I'm trying to figure out how to use it, lest I be used by it. It's a tricky balance. I cannot but think that we are all driven by some demons, even, even if you make friends with them. Well, they are still demons. Surely at times they can teach, even guide. You just might not always like where they take you. So, one more story of creeping before I let you go. One more attempt to make an apologia for what I've become. It's late March, just past midday. It's a bit humid, but not unbearably so. I'm about to board a van with a bunch of strangers who have all signed up for a Katrina Tour, a three-hour survey of the devastating floods that submerged 90% of the city in the aftermath of the hurricane and the failure of the levee system. Folks from New Jersey, Illinois, and even Canada talk excitedly about water damage and urban blight. Almost 10 years to the day, and the floods still fascinate. Besides our guide, I'm the only one from New Orleans. I was born and raised here, but I'm not telling anyone. I'm undercover, a closeted native. I want to experience the tour as a visitor, a stranger, as someone whose family wasn't impacted by Katrina and the flooding, even though we were, dramatically. Still, I want some distance, or maybe... This time, I want to erase the distance I have felt from this place, to remember, to reflect, to live all of it again. But I definitely want to creep up on the place, perhaps take it unawares. Approaching the 10-year anniversary of the event, I, I want to feel my way again toward which memories are important. As you know, 
I left New Orleans over 20 years ago, a queer man struggling with his sexuality in the deep South. I, I needed to leave to find myself in less hostile places. I'm torn. This has been home and not home. I wonder, after time, the storm, the flooding, the blood and the water, what can it be to me now? Regardless, I still feel a little creepy not outing myself as a native, if no longer a local. I'm, <laughs> I'm yet again in disguise, hiding, peering out. I'm creeping. The tour is one of many that you can get in and around NOLA with visits to the French Quarter and old plantations just upriver being some of the most popular. I'm actually surprised that Katrina tours are still so in demand. I had to call around to a couple of places before finding an empty seat in a van that accommodates about 12. I get to ride shotgun with a tour guide. He's a he's a geisy guy in a saint's ball cap, a native New Orleanian, someone that, well, frankly, I could have gone to high school with in Metairie, the large suburb to the west, just over the 17th Street Canal. He's been a guide for well over a decade, and he knows his stuff, winding the van through the old city's small streets, up canal, around the French Quarter, the streets closed for one of the many outdoor music fests, and into the Faubourg Marigny, one of the oldest neighborhoods near downtown. He jokes throughout the tour and is particularly playful with the kids on the van, testing their knowledge of historical events. But a certain... <laughs> A certain seriousness lurks in the background. Constant reminders of flood levels, references to famous buildings that no longer exist, details of renovations undertaken since the waters receded. We can't go far into the lower Ninth Ward, apparently. According to our guide, city officials have put the area on a no-tour list. Some of the wood used in the Brad Pitt Homes from Pitt's Make It Right organization, which built over a hundred sustainable homes in the area. Well, some of that wood is apparently rotting, not having been treated to withstand the abundant moisture in the air. Pitt's foundation is suing the supplier. While most of the afternoon focuses on Katrina, our guide weaves in some other local color, particularly the famous above-ground tombs. When your city is largely six-plus feet below sea level, you don't bury people in the ground. We pull over to walk around an old cemetery, dates in the family vaults stretching way back into the 18th century. As new generations pass, old remains are swept to the back and fall to the bottom of the tombs, piling on top of one another over the years. Thinking of the dust of generations easily recalls scenes from almost exactly a decade ago. My sister called on a Sunday, sobbing into the phone, just, just days after the storm and reports of the flooding were being televised nonstop. My dad wouldn't live much longer. He'd been suffering from Parkinson's for well over a decade, his health slowly deteriorating. The last year had been particularly rough, the physical and cognitive debilitation having taken a sharp turn for the worse. I'd visited earlier in the summer at my mother's insistence to give her a hand. As his primary caretaker and approaching 70 herself, well, she was wearing out. It wasn't a pretty sight. 
In the middle of the night, I found him stark naked and standing over his bathroom sink, water running, his body rigid and paralyzed. The water had woken me up. He had no idea what was happening or how he'd gotten there. But I was able to get him back into bed. That was about a month before Katrina. I had no reason to doubt my sister's assessment of the situation or the deep pain in her voice when she told me I should come as soon as I could. Kissing my partner Mac goodbye, I was on a plane the next day. Getting into the area wasn't going to be easy. New Orleans International Airport was completely shut down except for emergency and military traffic. Same for roads in and out of the city. My parents had retired to the Mississippi Gulf Coast to a spot pretty much in the direct path of Katrina. In the dead of night, having stayed up to watch incoming reports about the storm's predicted trajectory, they'd been able to get across New Orleans and make it all the way to West Louisiana, outside of Lake Charles, near the Texas border, where much of my mother's extended family still live. She's from tough Cajun stock, the French country people who expelled from Canada once the British took over settled in the swamps and watery byways of southwest Louisiana. It's it's remote country, inhospitable, hot, humid. Of the numerous small towns between Baton Rouge and Houston, Lake Charles is amongst the largest, but not large. After a flight from Cincinnati to Houston and a puddle jumper into Lake Charles, my brother-in-law picked me up at the airport. My mother and I slept in the waiting room that night, fitfully, having pulled together a few uncomfortable vinyl-covered chairs, surrounded by other evacuees waiting out news of their loved ones. In the morning, my mother, sister, and I stood around my father's bed, holding vigil over his pitifully wasted form, his breaths coming in slow but jagged, his face pinched in unconsciousness. He wouldn't ever open his eyes again. The nurses assured us it was only a matter of time. My father died about 10 hours after I arrived. His frail body and mind couldn't handle the stress of the evacuation. My mother was convinced the overtaxed hospital staff couldn't attend to him properly. He was a Katrina victim, one of many old, sick people who didn't survive the storm. He was fortunate to die in a bed, in a hospital, with family surrounding him. Days later, we had his funeral and then waited for permission to get back into the affected areas to see what remained. For weeks, many folks were stuck in West Louisiana or other parts of the country. My mother, sister, and brother-in-law, along with their three kids, stayed with an aunt and her adult children, many of whom lived in trailers or homes they'd built around their mother's trailer off a small road that bore their family name. The water would often run brown for a bit when you turned on the tap. Eventually, we learned that my sister's and mother's homes had, well, negligible damage. An aunt, uncle, and their sons, though, had lost everything flooded out of the city. The people in the tour van want to see blight. They want to see devastation, which itself seems a bit creepy, uh, looking in on others who have suffered a slight gawking at damages endured. There's not as much of it as there used to be in 2006, I drove to the area with a photojournalist, John Hughes, to do a story about the devastation. 
The storm surge had taken out nearly every building along Highway 90, the beachfront road on the Mississippi Gulf Coast. We saw miles and miles of abandoned homes that had sat under 9 to 12 feet of water. Plenty, plenty of blight. Nine years later, driving through the Upper Ninth Ward, we see a destroyed home here and there, desolate with orange spray-painted X's still noting when the building had been inspected for remains, human and otherwise. Mostly, we see newer homes, now elevated, as much as 10 feet off the ground, with carports holding empty space for future floodwaters. Our guide points out how older homes had been lifted up or just moved completely to somewhat higher ground. He talks about his own home in Lakeview, flooded under eight feet of water, and the weeks and weeks of driving into the neighborhood with family to salvage, clean up, repair, and then rebuild, returning to Baton Rouge after dark when the curfew came. Habitat for Humanity and the city built the 72 homes of Musicians Village, centered on the Ellis Marcellus Center for Music, providing music instruction for area youth. Brightly colored in oranges, purples, greens, it's a Creole medley. They house local players and attempt to preserve the city's jazz heritage. The wrecked and abandoned, they're side by side next to the colorfully new, hopeful, for the future. Such contradictions are everywhere here. Growing up, we always felt the assured cataclysm, quite physically. Nearly every hurricane season, we'd be packing the car to head west or north, fleeing a storm. We always knew that the city would eventually flood. The protecting levees were destined to fail. The waters that receded would surely rise again. New Orleans knows the cycles of life, celebrates them in its many festivals and its contradictions, its intense love of pleasure and its tolerance of corruption, its nurturing of the bon vivant and its deep racial segregations, its sexual openness and its intense homophobia. The schools and churches that gave me a love of reading and music, well, they also taught me to hate myself. The relatives who fed me their delicious food withheld their love. Even after the storm, as we huddled in my aunt's trailer outside Lake Charles, my father dead, my mother and sister wondering if their homes still existed. <laughs> One relative offered that Katrina was God's punishment on New Orleans for its sinful ways, and another complained to my aunt that Mac my partner of 15 years, who had made it into the area for my father's funeral. Well, he shouldn't be allowed to stay in her trailer. We ate our boudin shrimp creole, and I could only thank the God who had struck my hometown that I'd escaped, however scarred. One of New Orleans' nicknames is the city that care forgot. I felt I knew those forgotten cares well. I still feel them, ghost bruises, creeping under my skin. But in our tour guide's tone, I hear a care that I'd not noticed before, or perhaps one that I didn't know how to hear. Maybe it's one that only Katrina and the failure of the levees could make audible for me. 
We stop at the 17th Street Canal, site of the most devastating levee breach of all. The guide's voice strains a bit. He's been talking for nearly three straight hours, but I sense something else happening. He's getting riled. He points out the massive construction, new walls, new pumps, new floodgates, but he's not proud. He wonders why all of this wasn't here before. The van slows down so we can see the historical plaque marking the location of the breach. It's a typical brown piece of metal, and the guide reads the words with increasing emphasis, his voice cracking at the end. On August 29th, 2005, a federal flood wall atop a levee on the 17th Street Canal, the largest and most important drainage canal for the city, gave way here, causing flooding that killed hundreds. This breach was one of 50 ruptures in the federal flood protection system that occurred that day. In 2008, the U.S. District Court placed responsibility for this flood wall's collapse squarely on the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. However, the agency is protected from financial liability in the Flood Control Act of 1928. An ooh escapes from the back of the van, but we are otherwise silent until someone points to some of the houses around the levee, asking why anyone would want to live here again. The guide almost loses composure. Sitting in the front with him, I see his hands clench and unclench, the healthy pink of his face reddening a bit more. This is the important part. We didn't ask to be flooded. Blame Uncle Sam. I have to admit, I like his anger. I'm glad he's pissed. He should be. And he shouldn't tolerate the questioning from the back of the van, wondering why and what someone would choose. After all, this is his home. I'm trying to understand how Katrina changed things for me. It's complicated. The storm, my father's death, <laughs> a welter of ambivalent feelings and memories of my boyhood, the damage incurred. Perhaps abandonment is a key here. I, I had abandoned New Orleans feeling that it had abandoned me, yes, just as I had been emotionally abandoned by my father and by a social world and Catholic doctrine that bullied and degraded me. I had decided to leave this place that I felt had left me first, and I'd found family and home somewhere else. There's a part of me that thinks of Katrina all the time. Part of my fascination is its avoidability. Surely a Category 5 hurricane is a force to be reckoned with, but the damages exacerbated by human failing, by human negligence, demand an accounting. So too do the damages done to me, a young queer man drowning in waves of homophobia. Then again, I was also at the time beginning to feel lucky sitting in that van, touring the damage, having survived. I was a creep 
Yes, but one who survived. The tour over, I drive back to my mother's house. There are no pictures of Mac and me and my mother's home, although my sisters and their families have been on display for years. After setting my breakfast plate down in front of me, my mother heads to the bathroom, shutting the door behind her. I hear a tiny click as she locks the door, and I chuckle to myself. (laughs) We're alone in the house. Whom does she think is going to walk in on her while she's urinating? It's hard for me not to hear that click as the reverberating sound of all the silences between us, the lack of trust, the absence of intimacy, the truths untold. Am I a creep to her too, still, after all this time? I'm always preparing myself for the worst, stealing myself for the inevitable disappointment, fortifying myself against the expected rejection. I don't wonder why anymore. Obviously, you have to turn away from some creeps. But maybe, maybe not everyone. And if you've listened this far, you may have flinched at times. You might still. But you haven't turned away. Not completely. But I know it's hard. (laughs) I told a good friend once about my father's work, about how he hated every day of his life, what he did. And she expressed pity for him. But I don't want to have pity for him. I feel in myself an attempt to resist sympathy, and I recognize my creepiness in that withholding of pity, that turning him into an object by refusing to see him as a damaged person himself, as the creep he was. At the same time, I can't deny that I also feel myself becoming, well, dispassionate about former grievances, my own pain lessening with time. I'm worrying past worry a little more every day. Like a hole in a coat you no longer mind as you mindlessly finger it. And then I remember one day, months after the storm, walking along the beach in Bay St. Louis on the Mississippi Gulf Coast, surveying the damage sustained. Someone had set up a Christmas tree on the beach amidst the debris. It's a bit creepy, but still hope in the middle of destruction. You have been listening to Creep, the podcast. You can find the original book, Creep, A Life, A Theory, An Apology, at its publisher's website, punctumbooks.com. For more information about this podcast and other books related to Creep, check out www.thecreeptrilogy.com. This podcast is directed and produced by Hai Truong. It is narrated by me, Jonathan Alexander. Thank you for listening.